E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Rob Mackin on a show of Artisan Wine. Nice to see you. Good to see you. You are from Philadelphia. Well, yeah, Philadelphia area, born in uh, the western suburbs of Philadelphia, Lower Marion, but raised in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Uh, went to college in downtown Philadelphia. What was that like? I went to college very close to home, so I didn't get that big, you know, far away from home thing. I spent a, a long, long time in college, uh, nearly seven years as an undergrad, and Despite the fact that I, when I did eventually graduate, I did graduate magna cum laude. So yeah, because uh, you're a pretty smart guy, so hmm, I wouldn't think, think so. it would be like academic deficiency. No, I just kept changing my major. I started in environmental engineering and science, and then uh, with minors in organic chemistry, biochemistry. Uh, went to a school called Drexel that had a co-op program where they would place you in jobs that were related to what you were studying. And I looked around and I saw the guys that were my superiors. And I said, do I want to work 15 years after college to get to have his job? And the answer was no. So I switched, uh, ultimately, uh, several times, but finished a degree in international business and marketing. And where did you take that? Well, all along, all during school, I worked in restaurants to supplement my earnings. Uh, well to have some earnings rather, I should say. And, but, um, uh, worked in restaurants the whole time. And in the last gig, which lasted quite a few years, a, a funky little restaurant downtown Philadelphia called the Nave of Hearts, got pretty involved with their wine program there. And that's when I really got interested in wine. And the guy who ran it, a wonderful guy by the name of Bob Kobar, in my senior year, he left to start his own wine distributing company. And so he said to the owner, you know, you might as well let Rob take over my job here at the restaurant, maintaining the wine list. It was already built up to 240 selections, which in the early eighties was a pretty rare thing, especially in the state of Pennsylvania, which is sort of handicapped as it comes as far as wine goes. Cause it's a government monopoly you buy from the state. Yeah. The, the variety of wine and the price of wine in Pennsylvania is, uh, you know, very, unattractive compared to nearby markets. And at that time you were working with American and French wines. Predominantly American and French. Yes. That was the list where I worked there at the Nava Hearts. And before that at a restaurant called the garden, which was a pretty famous institution in Philadelphia. 
and those were largely American and French lists. And so that's where that, that was my initial exposure. What happened next? Actually, the, the man I mentioned before, Bob Kobar, he was, uh, I become pretty friendly with him and he said, I can't believe you're still scratching your head, wondering what it is you want to do with your degree after college when you have such a natural affinity for wine. He said, to me, you've got a, a marketing degree, an international business degree, and you know more about wine already than most people who are a lot older than you. Have you ever considered the fact that there's a business behind wine? <laughs> so it was like a light bulb went off in my head. So a couple months later, I moved to New York, having accepted a, a job selling wine for Star Industries. And what was that? Star was a funny thing. They're now defunct. Uh, they were a Long Island-based, predominantly liquor-oriented distributing company. And they were um, trying to break out of that being a liquor house mold and get more into wine because they saw the industry changing. So they had advertised in the Times for a wine specialist, to, especially to sell on-premise so I came up to New York, uh, moved my things. Uh, it was actually Mother's Day. I remember it was 1986. I moved into my apartment and went to work for them. It didn't last very long, but it, it brought about uh, really a sea change in my focus uh, within the industry. How so? Star, as I said, was mostly a liquor company. The Really the only, uh, not the only good wines, but the, the major part of their portfolio that was actually really good wine was the Vias Imports portfolio. And Vias back then was a very, very small company, quite new, didn't have a distribution license. They had Italian partners and an, an American partner, uh, a very iconic man in the Italian wine business here in New York, Louis Iacucci or Lou Iacucci. So I focused on selling those wines and did things like, <clears throat> you know, dropped 20 cases of Vignonese's Griefy on Gotham Bar and Grill for By the Glass. And, and he was he was like, who who is doing this all of a sudden? Because that was not happening. And so Lewis took me under his wing and uh, you know taught me more about Italian wine because I came to him and said, listen, I love these wines, but in the world of wine, Italian wine is my by far my weak point. So uh, I had a great, great first teacher in Lewis. And also during that time, I got exposed to a number of individuals who were doing different kinds of functions in the wine business. Uh, winery reps, for instance, you know, they'd come through and they'd, you know, they'd, or they might be a regional rep for, I don't know, just any big, big time California winery. And they're going around every day, all day long, all year long, selling the same three varietals. Like we've got a Cabernet, we got a Chardonnay and a Merlot back then. Even There wasn't even Pinot Noir or much Sauvignon Blanc around. So I said, my God, you know, that for me would get boring really, really fast. Uh, and then in juxtaposition, one of the first things that I learned from Lewis is that if you take all of the uh, grape varietals in the rest of the world, except for Italy, add them up and multiply it by 10, you still don't have the number of varietals that exist in Italy. And I said, well, that's a field that could never get boring. So that's sort of where my uh, career direction and focus went. What was Lewis like as a person? Oh, he was uh, very warm, very gregarious. He knew so much, but he didn't ever come off as, you know, someone who uh, was uppity or, or you know, if, if you liked a wine that, that he thought was not very likable, he wouldn't, you know, put you down for it. He was a really, really nice guy. Everyone, there's not a lot of people that I know 
from back then who knew him, but everyone has such high regard for him. And he had a shop of his own. Yeah. And that was actually Gold Star. It was in Queens. And that was because he was the owner of the store, the problem with him getting a distribution license after a few months of me being very successful selling those wines, we already started talking about forming a VS imports distributing company. The problem was as a retail licensee, he couldn't have a distribution business. So he was went about transferring the the store to his wife's name so, or, or vice versa. I forget. It's almost it's, 30 it's years now. now. So, yeah. But he couldn't have both. So <clears throat> while he was, um, trying to get that done, I had already made up my mind that I wanted to switch my career focus to Italian wine. What uh, were some of the key moments that you thought that I'm into this besides the grape variety thing? Just tasting great wines. I mean, I was selling back then, you know, Bartolo Mascarello, 71 and 78 Barolos. And, you know, a lot, a lot of really good stuff was in that portfolio then. He was a big Piemonte guy, right? Like Valana and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, well, it was Piedmont. It was Tuscany. It was, although I'm not such a huge fan now of the whole super Tuscan thing. The mid '80s is really when that boomed. Also, those wines were really good in the mid '80s. <laughs> they were. Yeah. Like if you, you look know. back at some of those wines that you find boring today, yeah. I have found that the '85, the '83 of that wine is really good. Yeah, like I was yeah. selling 1982 San Marco from Castello right. di Rampolla back then. You know, through Star Industries, which was it was funny because hardly anyone else there was paying any attention to that whole part of the portfolio. And what he liked about it was that I wasn't just selling to Italian restaurants, but I was broadening the audience, bringing it to places that, you know, important name restaurants that had international wine lists. Because even today, Italian wine distribution is often ghettoized to Italian restaurants. It is. I've, I've never, I've never had that kind of focus. I've, you know, since the day that I decided that Italian would be a heavy focus of my career, I've been adamant that they belong side by side with the great wines of the world. And I still believe that more so than ever. So I always tried to sell not only to Italian restaurants, but to places to that didn't have really even any sort of Italian influence in their menu, but just that uh, the wines belong there. They were that great. So what was the next move after working for Star for like six, seven months? Yeah, I was starting to get pressure, uh, despite the fact that I had opened up, uh, you know, there was a famous restaurant at that time, Hubert's on 22nd Street and Gotham Bar and Grill. I was putting this distributing company in restaurants that they never believed that they could ever sell to. Um, but they started pressuring me because I was not making my quota on my Smirnoff and my Johnny Walker red. And it was a liquor company. And it was, and it's like, I said, well, yeah, we came here to get you to broaden our market and sell some wine. I said, listen, I never really agreed to be a liquor salesman. And so the, the pressure was coming. I, um, I don't think that they would have fired me, but I just was tired of having conversations about Smirnoff and whiskey and, you know, vodka, whiskey, gin, whatever, it, whatever it was. I wanted a career in the wine business. At about that same time, uh, Vinifera Imports uh, left Wheaton, Illinois, where they had founded, and they were advertising for someone to be an Italian specialist salesperson in New York City. And they also had an amazing, amazing portfolio, especially back then. What was uh, it like back then? Well, 
obviously I took the job with Vinifera but a couple months later, my, my first trip to Italy, uh, landed in Rome, went and had dinner in the dining room of Eduardo Valentini. I had no idea how rare an occurrence something like that was until much later when, you know, all the sort of folklore of, of him being reclusive and secretive, he did not let me in the cellar. Uh, but no one gets uh, to go basically. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the but, <clears throat> but just to sit at his family dining table. Um, and it was funny because, uh, I was uh, very athletic in, in my 20s and ran a lot and worked out. And, you know, I'd just been on a red-eye flight and I was exhausted and very hungry. And, like, they brought a few appetizers and then pasta. And I asked for more pasta, not knowing that there was still yet another couple different pastas, plus the fish, the chicken, the veal, and the, and the lamb to come. So, um, I've totally done that. Yeah. Like my first trip to Italy, I was, I just assumed that the antipasti was the whole meal and I kept eating it. Like, oh man, I'm pretty hungry. Let me get more of this. And I didn't realize there was all this other stuff. Coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I learned that was my very first trip there. I'd read about that stuff. Um, but never, that was my first trip. That was, uh, I guess that was 86 or 87. But uh, you know, on that trip, uh, aside from dining in my first meal in Italy, being at the dining table of Eduardo Valentini, I got to, you know, go in the cellar with Bruno Giacosa himself and, you know, dine with him in a very intimate setting at a, a very nice restaurant where he had amazing meals. Through those years at Vinifera, I was exposed to an awful lot. Dominic Nocciarino, the owner of Vinifera, was generous with me from the point of view that he would expose me to a lot of opportunities to learn. I, I can't say that I actually learned directly from him. He never spoke about wine in a technical way it, it, to him. And it's funny because today now I'm, I'm kind of coming around to his focus, but I think from a very different path where it's, it's good or it's not, but that's after having been through all the technical analysis and, but I've come full circle like geeking out about wine for so many years. And now I'm just like, it's, it's either good or it's not. And all the other minutiae, you know, is it indigenous yeast or inoculated? What kind of barrels? It's either good or it's not, you know, and that's, uh, that's really what matters to me now. Um, so what was Eduardo Valentini like when he was alive? His reputation for being enigmatic, uh, was well-deserved. <laughs> Can I just put it that way? It's kind of hard to read the guy. Also, he spoke no English, and at that time, I know Italian, uh, or just a few words. So I got to taste through his wines, feel the warmth of the family's hospitality. Uh, there was probably a patrician vibe about it. I mean, he was fairly wealthy, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they, they were doing just fine. <laughs> but not, not, not uh, really... Um, uh, ostentatious or sure. overt wealth but you know there was clearly no no one was suffering for lack there and what was bruno giacosa like in the 80s he was already uh, a man of uh, advancing age again the this trip was my first and i had just you know very recently decided to focus on italian wines without speaking any italian language and found myself at these places where very few people spoke any English. Bruno had two daughters, Bruna and Marina. And uh, actually, 
they both kind of served as interpreters for for me and a couple other people uh, on that trip that were not uh, Italian speakers. Dominic obviously was fluent in both languages, but was uh, didn't you know he let other people do translating. But he also had Gaia in the eighties and stuff, huh? Well. You know, Gaia came to Vinifra after I was gone. I was there in the very early days. We had a portfolio that included Felsina, Fantodi, Lazzini, Teruzzi and Puto, Maculan, Giuseppe Rinaldi, uh, Giacomo Bologna. Excuse me if my memory fails. It's 30 years ago. Plenty of interesting people in there. Yeah, I mean, when I first joined uh, Vinifera, Dominic very generously gave me a little vertical of Brunate from Rinaldi. I I said, you know, I've I've heard that you know one of the magical things about Barolo is how well it will age. And he said, yeah, well, here there's a, a 61 Brunate, a 64, 67, and a 71. And currently we were selling the 78. So he said, yeah, take them home. And that's You'll all see. pre-Bepe, basically. That's Bepe's dad, Batista, I think, right? Uh, yeah, that was Batista, yeah. What was that dude like? Their operation, as just about all of uh, the places in Piedmont then, looked modest. Most of these wineries, their their scale was quite small uh, by today's standards. And frankly, uh, they were not selling their wine so readily. I mean, and that's why in like you know 86, we were selling... 78 Barolos and the, you could, you could go and buy wine back vintages back then quite easily. Uh, It was just then that really this trend started where quite small landholders could feasibly uh, stop selling their grapes to either a big house or a co-op. And as the market and the international interest in Italian wines blossomed, they could have a viable business plan selling off of, you know, four or five hectares of vineyard, it, it made sense to build their own winery at that point because finally then by the mid-80s, worldwide attention about Italian wines, particularly Piedmontese wines, uh, was starting to catch on. Piedmontese wines and Tuscan mostly in the form of Super Tuscans. But that's also the tail end of sharecropping, right? Like no yeah. more of that. So that had to be a big cultural change in Italy in terms of people not living on a farm, making a small part for rent and making a part for them and that system going away. Well, the, the, the combination of that system dying out, the two world wars, you know, Italy, I think did a very good job sort of coming out of ashes, so to say, and creating a really vibrant wine industry in, in a relatively short time. Italians are very creative and industrious people, especially when they're putting their family name on a product. It seems like often when the Italian brand surfaces in America, in our perception of it, it's often those are nice old grandmothers who know how to cook well. That's the brand. That's the brand Italia. Well, yes and no. I I think that when I first got in the business uh, here in New York in the mid-80s, what we knew about Italian wine was mostly from the very largest wineries that existed in Italy. It was, you know, all the great big brand names, Rufino, Corvo, Santa Margarita, that that really controlled to a large extent wine lists in Italian restaurants and shelf space in stores. It 
And yet, if you went to Italy then and really looked at the true substance and fabric of the industry, it was really more a patchwork of all these tiny little producers who, you know, very lovingly handcrafted really great and compelling wines, but they just weren't savvy enough to get them sold in America. And I think it's the 80s that really that started to change where the next sort of tier in terms of size winery, uh, you know, a winery that made 10 or 20,000 cases was exporting to the U.S. And then, of course, you know, today uh, there are wineries that I work with that make, you know, a thousand cases of wine per year and they have three importers in the U.S. So, Do you think that increased communication technology has made that easier? Certainly. Yeah. The world is smaller and uh, modern technology helps. Uh, also, most young Italians speak English and still, as you know, very few Americans speak anything other than English. Uh, uh, so I'm sorry, Rob. <laughs> so basically I think the, the young generation in Italy said, well, you know, if I'm going to make wine, uh, and, and I can't sell it all in Italy, uh, I need to know languages. So most, most young Italians speak English fairly well compared to, like I said, you know, my first trip to Italy in the mid eighties, I was dealing with older Italians or meeting older Italians and, and, uh, they didn't speak English or, or not well enough to really, uh, fathom well thought out marketing plan for uh, export sales. A lot of times I feel like I've encountered wineries that would rather not sell in Italy that are Italian wineries because the laws are different. They don't necessarily have to be paid by restaurants and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, very recently Italian law changed and restaurants actually do have to pay, but yeah, one of my key suppliers that you recently interviewed, uh, Renato Vaca at Cantina del Pino. He's like, I'd really rather not sell any wine in Italy because no one ever pays for their wine. He's like, I love selling to America because people pay me for my wine. And so maybe I sell it for a little bit less, but I know, I know I'm going to get paid. Uh, Americans, most of them anyway, do have that reputation for, uh, you know, paying their bills. So you were at Vinifera for like six, seven years. Yeah, it was, um, a little shy of seven years. And during that time, Vias did go ahead and start a, a distributing company. And Livio Penabianco was sort of the, uh, I believe for many years, he was the only salesman for them in New York. And he was aware of my early history with Lewis. And while Lewis was still alive, they kind of approached me uh, once or twice and said, hey, you know, you were going to, we were talking about doing something together. Well, we're doing it now. And I was like, well, gosh. I'm knee deep in this and I'm having fun and making a lot of money. Um, because probably Italian restaurants were taken off too in New York at that time. There was a huge Italian restaurant boom and I had a portfolio that was really fairly easy to sell. It was kind of weird for me as a young American man going around uh, speaking predominantly to Italian men who were older than me, telling them what I thought that they should have on their wine lists. It took a while for me to uh, melt the ice with some of those folks, but uh, eventually I did, and I, I was earning a lot of money for being such a young man, very, you know, just a couple of years in the wine business. And ultimately, after Lewis was tragically killed in a car crash in Tuscany, Vias did approach me and they, they said, listen, you know, we would like to make you a, a minor partner if you you know, jump ship from Vinifera and come over and work with us. And, and so I did. Livio, who I also know, pretty cool cat. I, I like Livio. 
Livio is a great guy. And uh, when I first went there, it was Livio and, uh, well, the, the company decided that they needed to have American partners, or at least partners who were in America. So they made Livio a partner and myself. There was a man by the name of Roberto Rosenfeld who was with us then. He didn't last too long. And then Dino Tantawi came in as a, as a partner as well. So Livio and, and uh, Dino and I were all partners in that early formation of Vias Imports. And you all own your own distributor in New York now. Yeah. Vias is actually an, an acronym for uh, Vini Italiani e Elementari Selezionata. And I had uh, come up with a different one that basically said it was a, a school for Italian wine importers with using the same letters because everyone who, who was there in the early years went on to do their own thing. And what was it like at that time working at Vias, being a minor partner? I went from having a, a portfolio that was very much in demand with a lot of product and a lot of depth at Vinifera. Uh, Dominic used to have many vintages back. so uh, He owned his own warehouse and yeah, he used yeah. to buy wine. <laughs> yeah, he, he stuffed that warehouse with wine and you could you know, walk by rows and rows of back vintages of great wines. Uh, Vias was quite different and that's why you know, in the end they had to offer me a partnership to leave and still being a minor partner, you know, I realized wasn't really the, the change that I was looking for. But on the other hand, I remember in my first few years there, if we got, you know, 300 cases of Del Forno's Valpolicella for the U.S., I probably sold 200 of them myself to restaurants who poured it by the glass. So... I mean, and, you know, San Marco uh, from Rampola was, you know, in, in a really top place, could be offered by the glass. And so it's very different than the industry now. I mean, the, the allocated items and the sky-high prices, um, those came later. But being a partner, you must have seen some of the nuts and bolts, the inside working, the planning, the strategic stuff that you wouldn't have seen as a sales guy. Yeah, and that, that was one of the main reasons for me to, to leave what was a, a very interesting stream of earnings at Vinifera to be a minor partner and, you know, look, talking about, you know, markups and logistics and all the things that someone who has a, an economic interest in the business can learn. And that served me well uh, for several years. Again, it was about six or seven years. I also, in the meantime... Had gotten married and then gotten divorced, and um, I was uh, for a while a little depressed after the divorce. And my performance, I, even though as a partner at Vias, I was essentially out selling wine, and my performance as a salesperson suffered a little bit after that. And you know, there was, you know, that's that's never good as in, inside a company where you're a partner. But in the meantime, because I divorced and I had this big house in Connecticut, I, I rented out rooms and I found myself essentially living rent-free. My, my housemates were paying my mortgage. And I said, you know, right now is the time, if ever, for me to take a risk if I want to ever do my own thing because I, I'm not married. I have no kids. I'm living here for free, essentially. So I decided to go out on my own and start my own company. What year was that? That was 1998. And interestingly enough, when I first started, uh, and this goes back to my time at Vias and the segue from Vinifera to Vias, I thought that it was important for us to 
also sell domestic wine. I mean, after all, we're here in America. Almost all the restaurants that we sold to, even Italian restaurants, had some domestic wines. Seemed an opportunity being lost there. And that was one of the things that I insisted that we do at Vias is to develop a domestic portfolio, which was largely done. Uh, well, you know, Livio was very involved in it as well, but it was really my insistence that we do it as part of, you know, my deal coming over there. We're gonna we're gonna develop a, a domestic portfolio on the side. So when I left Vias and went to start Artisan Wines. The only wines I had on day one, which was April Fool's Day, 1998, were domestic wines. I had uh, Babcock from California and Andrew Will from Washington State. Good time to have both of those, I think. Yeah, yeah, they were both making great wine then. And you had done regional sales across the country at some point working for Vinifera. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, my first year, 18 months, uh, I was just in New York for Vinifera. I did very, very well. And Dominic said, well, we're going to unleash Rob on the whole East Coast, everything but Florida. So I was uh, traveling pretty much uh, Atlanta to Boston. I think I made one trip to Maine unsuccessfully, but up and down the East Coast and dealing with distributors. And so I, I saw that that side of the business. And frankly, I really didn't like that part of it. When I was there at Vinifera, there were distributorships that couldn't sell in a year, even though I had 20 salespeople, what one really good restaurant account in New York could sell. And obviously, when you're out selling to distributors, you're selling at a lower price and a lower commission because the idea is that the volume will be there. And I said, I, I don't enjoy the travel, number one. I'm not making as much money. And so I insisted that I retract my area of uh, responsibility just back to New York again. And I'd also just gotten married, my, my first uh, marriage. And so I didn't want to be on the road all the time. But did you see that difference between New York and the regions as a financial base in New York or that the culture for Italian wine was just stronger in New York in terms of sales? It's a little bit of both. I think that the culture in Boston is pretty strong for Italian wine. They have a, a, a large Italian-American population. I'm not really so sure how much Italian wine is consumed by Italian-Americans, though. So I don't know. I don't know really what it is. Um, I've it's been a long, long time since I you know worked in restaurants. I don't know who ultimately consumes all these wines, but I have a pretty strong feeling that it's not necessarily Italian Americans. So the the culture of having a lot of Italian Americans in Metro New York may or may not have a whole lot of influence. The bigger influence is the big influx of young Italians from Italy who came here and opened restaurants and a huge boom in Italian cuisine that all New Yorkers then, you know, fell in love with Italian cuisine in the eighties or, or not all, but a huge, a huge number. So we're talking about like Pino Longo and stuff. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, on the Upper East Side and, uh, you know, the Lusardi brothers and Elio and uh, Adi Giovanetti from, you know, all, all these early sort of iconic Upper East Side uh, restaurants. Pino Longo was a little bit out of the mold and he moved downtown. Was not a lot of restaurant activity downtown way back then. Hence the failure of Tom Keller's Raquel down on Varick Street. I remember sitting late at night a number of times with him and his wine director scratching our heads. Why isn't this restaurant full? 
but obviously he went on to make a name for himself. But the financial wherewithal also in, in, uh, in New York, I think New Yorkers could afford to drink the better Italian wines and fewer people in other markets either could afford to or they hadn't learned the culture that it was, you know, might be okay to spend a lot of money on a Bordeaux or a Burgundy, but not for Brunello or Barolo. So, but it's hard to say what caused that. But I noticed that I spent a lot of time trying to sell wine to a distributor in another state and they would buy not enough to make it worth my time. I might've been, a little, you know, we might've been a little bit ahead of our time trying to push that on them at that point in time. So you start up Artisan, and when I look at the Artisan portfolio today, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of winners for Italian wine. I mean, obviously, as you said, there's strong wines from America, there's wine from Spain, there's wine from other countries, but there's wine after wine that I happen to really like from Italy. So how did you develop that portfolio? Was it things you had seen or heard about while you were on the road in Italy for previous companies? or? Well, certainly being in the business for 30 years or almost 30 years means you know a lot of people. And, you know, for instance, you know, my Barbaresco producer, my only Barbaresco producer, Cantina Del Pino, I was very good friends with Aldo Vaca, his cousin, who runs the Protatori Del Barbaresco. And that was coming through Vias. Yeah. And I'd, I'd spent so much time on the streets of New York working with Aldo over nearly seven years at Vias. And I said, listen, it's time for me to do my own thing. And I mean, that, that was just a gift. He's, he just put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Come with me. And he brought me over to, this was out of Italy. As soon as I, I left Vias, I went to the next Italy, And he said, I want to introduce you to my cousin. He's been a part of the Prototori for all these years, and now he's making his own wine. And uh, here, you guys go. And, uh, of course, turned out to be a really great really producer. Good. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times when people say, who's good in Barbaresco, it's not the Prototori or Gaia or, or whatever. That's usually one of the first names that comes out of their mouth. Yeah, I'm... Who I like in Barbaresco, I, I do like Prototori. I, I don't necessarily like Gaia that much, and it's not just the price, but uh, definitely for me, not just because I sell at the Cantina del Pino is on the very short list of who's best in Barbaresco right now. Um, but as a general rule, the the whole collection sort of grew slowly and organically due to a lot of research, a lot of tasting, traveling over there. I take with me always a trilogy of characteristics that I look for in any wine that I uh, work with of quality, typicity, and value. Uh, all three are pretty much equally important. And the, the value thing has caused me to uh, walk away from the opportunity in the past to represent some pretty iconic brands. I don't need to mention them, but people, if I said them like, you, what, you're crazy? They offered you their wine and you said no? I said, correct, because there's no value in those wines. I have things that are equivalent that cost significantly less. And I'm, I'm not big on the whole, oh, you know, um, prestige label thing. You know, I, I look for culture in wine. Wine to me is not a commodity, but really the product of a people in a place doing a thing for many generations. It's, it's a real cultural artifact of the area. And when you turn it into a luxury goods product, it loses some of that 
culture in in trying to be something spiffy, you know? So, you know, with regard to quality, I think I also use a definition of the word quality that is not from last century, but the century before. Quality now in the English language is often used incorrectly, in my opinion, in that it refers to an absence of defects rather than the actual presence of really interesting characteristics in something. I think that the use of the word quality in that way stems from early manufacturing using a phrase called quality control. Quality control never, you know, made sure that the fabric was good or the, or that the, the thread was high, you know, of, of great tensile strength. It just made sure that everything looked and like the other, that, that there was uniformity and a lack of obvious defect. And I think that idea has seeped into the wine world. And I, I'm always looking for More wines. Than seeped. It's like a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's like really. I always look for wines that have quality in the sense of a, a 19th century definition of the word. Like that has qualities. Yeah. Yeah. And for typicity, you know, a Chianti Classico. I should put my nose in the glass and know right away I'm sniffing a Chianti Classico. Same for Barolo Barbaresco. So in in those days of the uh, you know the Barolo boys, the 80s and 90s when they were doing the roto fermenters and barriques, I was all against that and got in a lot of trouble with some sommeliers for telling them they were crazy to buy those kinds of wines because if those wines were the only thing coming out of the Lange, that the Piedmont was going to lose its great cultural tradition of great wine. And so because this typicity character is such a, a strong driver for me, I sometimes feel that it's lost on some of the people that I'm, I and my sales force present our wines to. So if you give someone a wine and one third of why you picked it is maybe not understood by them, it's not translating for them when they're tasting that wine, the typicity part. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, the, you know, the quality part, a lot of people are looking for wines that fit the more modern definition of quality, which is, you know, there's no rough edges. It's, you know, not going to offend anyone, which the flip side of that coin, of course, is also, it's really not going to excite anyone. It's never going to excite anyone. Yeah. So I find that uh, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, that uh, the wine should have an intense and strong character that is recognizable. And that's part of quality that, that you'll, it's a memorable wine. It's sort of like Cindy Crawford, a beautiful woman, uh, one of the most recognizable faces in the world. But if she didn't have that little uh, beauty mark on her cheek, she would look like a whole lot of other women. Uh, so there are little imperfections in everything that make them more unique and distinctive. And uh, I'm okay with imperfections in wine as long as everything else about it is really superb. So you mentioned Chianti and trying to find typicity, and you have some real strong Chianti producers in different areas like Montanitoli, Elizabeth has been on the show, and then also Caparsa with an S, Caparsa. What was it like finding those, and who are they like as people? Well, Elisabetta, you've met and interviewed. She's she's one of a kind and uh, a wonderful, great woman who has carved out for herself a really unique position as 
you know, there's no one in, in San Gimignano that, you know, it's not even like for me that there's even a second, third, or fourth place winery in that zone. She's number one, and the the next one is five. Um, how she did that with you know coming there from Verona and not really knowing what you know what to do, or she didn't go there with a goal of making wine. It's it's a great great story, and she's a a wonderful person and a real unique personality. Uh, at Caparsa, Paolo Cimfarone. Uh, was actually introduced to me through one of my other Chianti producers, uh, Gabriele Bondono, whose uh, estate Casavecchia alla Piazza is right on the edge of Penzano and uh, Castellina in Chianti. And uh, Gabriele said, you know, I know how much you like Chianti. I've, I've been a strong advocate of Chianti. It's a wine that unfortunately has kind of gone a little bit out of fashion. Uh, I still think it's you know, Chianti is the, is the heart and soul of Tuscany. And um, uh, Gabriele knew of my intent back then, which I never truly realized, that I wanted to have a Chianti from each part of Chianti that I thought represented not only typicity of Chianti Classico, but this one is a good rep- representative of Castellina, this one of Gaiole, this one of Castelnuovo Baradenga. And I was working my way towards that with some really a group of small, lovely producers, but my company is still quite small. And to have all those different Chiantis, when the fashionability, if you will, of that category of wine is falling, I would still love to do it one day, but Chianti's got to become more popular again. So, But there, there is a lot of a variation in Chianti Classico. It's, it's a little bit harder to talk about it vis-a-vis, say, uh, in Barolo, where there are very strong communal uh, differences that are soil-based. In Chianti, it has a lot to do with exposure, elevation. You've got a, a wild and constantly undulating uh, landscape. And without the very distinctive bands of soil types, they're more jumbled up and mixed in Chianti than they are in, in Barolo Barbaresco, where you, you, you find, you know, you know, Busia tastes like Busia and Genestra like Genestra, which is different than Gramolera, even though they're, you know, very close by. But that they all represent in some way what Manforte tastes like. It's a little, a little more difficult to do that in County Classico. So I put that project aside. It's a bit academic. I have a tendency to go that way, though. But Caparsa seems to me like a producer that can do something that I really appreciate about Chianti, which is age well. Caparsa's wines age extremely well. And one of the reasons is that they're fierce when they're young because his vineyards slope to the north. They're very high elevation. They slope off to the north. He is growing them organically at very low yields. And uh, in cool years, his wines, you know, sometimes he just doesn't bottle in cool years. But in the hot years, his wines are just fabulous and they're they age easily for 10 15 20 years when you speak about the zones within Piemonte, you have some interesting zones represented by producers you work with like you work with fratelli alessandria and verduno and verduno's kind of cool in multiple senses and what was it like finding them and how did that happen uh i'll be honest the reason i know about fratelli alessandria is the young very young at the time vittore came to New York and poured his wine at a Tribigary show. 
And it was his 1985 Monvillero. I remember tasting it, and, and just about every other Barolo at that show was one of these modern things. And I say that a little bit disparagingly and purposely. I, I don't like the roto-fermented barrique version of Barolo. And here was this young guy saying, yeah, you know, I know the style we make is kind of out of fashion, but it's, it's what we do and what we've been doing for 100 years. I said, don't you ever change. And so very shortly after that, I was importing his wine. That, that was a, uh, you know, I said 85, I meant 95 um, when he was pouring that. So that must have been, what, in 99, about a year after I started my company. When I first started the company, also, I sold wine I didn't initially just start importing everything myself. Certain brands I imported directly, but I also acted as a distributor for a portfolio of wines based in San Francisco called Sumavitas. So that was pretty short-lived. Uh, I didn't get along so well uh, with the gentleman there. But there was a lot of good wine in that portfolio. There was, yes. Radicon, I was there for a minute. That, yeah, I was there for a minute. That I didn't sell that. Um, pretty good Barbarosco producer. The Roanya was really the star there. And uh, there were some other good wines, but Roanya was really... Masavecchia. Masavecchia is good, yes. Um, so I was selling those wines briefly. And I said, you know, why why am I buying wine from Somebody someone a lot younger... That I don't like. <laughs> a lot younger than me with a lot less uh, experience in the business. And so that that lasted all of 18 months or two years maybe. And, and so as soon as I, that crumbled i you know the the first winery i got in touch with was uh alessandria i've always loved wine from verduno and when i tasted his i absolutely fell in love because it, it immediately became my favorite producer in verduno verduno wines are a little bit of everything they've got the elegance of lamora they've got the earth of barolo they have you know flowers and tobacco, all kinds of very interesting complexities, and yet they don't have much tannin. And, uh, or rather, the nature of the tannins is different. I, for whatever reason, they're able to get those uh, tannins fully ripened. It is a cool zone, and the growing season is longer. And I think that may, in fact, influence how ripe the tannins get, and therefore you can drink them young or you can drink them old. And the, the tannins are there, but they don't necessarily strike you as bitter or astringent green. You can, you know, they're delicious to drink on release. I, I drank a bottle of 2010 Alessandria this week, and it was absolutely delicious. A lot of times, Verduno strikes me as a good gateway for Burgundy lovers because it doesn't have the tannin. It is the natural way to take someone who's immersed in Pinot Noir into the world of Nebbiolo. You definitely take them to Verduno first, and and then to the other communes and and Serralunga last, obviously. That's where you have some pretty formidable tannins. You also did some work in southern Italy before. It was kind of fashionable. I mean, I think now southern Italy has a lot of momentum behind it. But even 10 years ago or even five years ago, it had much less. You had Alfonso del Sordo, which is, I think, one of those wines that really over-delivers for value. And how did that come around? I've, I've always thought that every region in Italy can make really good wine. Some are, you know, make truly great world-class wine, but almost every region I've tasted good stuff from. Puglia as a region relies on a lot of 
really high octane uh, red wines. And I've always been a fan of the red wines from the northern part of Puglia that rely predominantly on uh, Uva de Troya, Nero de Troya, whatever you want to call it. Pick a Troya, any Troya. <laughs> They're all the same. Um, I find that, that in the, the, the first wine that I uh, discovered from that grape was the Castel del Monte from Rivera. And, you know, you used to be able to buy that very cheaply. And it's and that used the, to be pretty smoking, actually. Yeah. Like, Il, I mean, for what I liked. The Il Falcone from Rivera, you know, back in the 80s, you could buy, pick that up for $10, $12 in a wine shop. And it was just fantastic wine. So, you know, in each region, I, I, I'm pretty good at keeping mental notes. And so, uh, you know, I, I know that I... Uh, I don't like Primitivo and, and those, you know, sort of really high octane stuff from the, the Salento uh, Peninsula and the southern heel of Puglia. So I just went looking for producers who were in the north who made wines from Uva de Troya. And uh, he was one. And the, the great bonus is that he also makes a really, really cool white wine from Bambino Bianco. So you weathered probably uh seawater change you start your company in 98 and then september 11th happens what was that like well i almost went out of business um i had i started as a just a one-man show uh then you know i had occasional office help uh, but not daily and by 2001 i'd hired some people to help me sell and uh Basically, the business dried up. I was very, very focused on uh, Lower Manhattan at the time, which was pretty, um, pretty bad place to be focused on having a lot of accounts in Lower Manhattan because no one could get to them. A lot of restaurants closed. There are restaurants that closed um, that owed me a fair amount of money, and not being located, you know, the assistance programs after 9-11 had only to do with the address where your business was domiciled, which for me is Connecticut. It didn't say anything about where the customer who owed you money was domiciled. So a bunch of people went out of business that I had receivables that I never saw. You know, some of them, you know, it was unfortunate, but, you know, a lot of people lost more than I during those years. But yeah, I had to regroup in 2001. I was once again uh, a one-man band. And, uh, 98 wasn't so easy either. <laughs> you mean 2008? Uh, 2008. Yeah. I, excuse me. I confused. But was it easier to go through it after since I won? Like, had you had that experience? That's kind of was my next question. Like, well, did that yeah. set you up for success when it happened again? Yeah. Well, the, the lesson of 2001 is to, was to be more geographically diverse in where I was, my company sold wine. And so we did that. We diversified. Uh, back then, although I lived in Connecticut, uh, in the first few years of Artisan Wines, I didn't sell in Connecticut. So we got got going in Connecticut and you know, developed Westchester and you know other areas where all my eggs were not in one basket geographically. And uh, so 08 was very interesting in that my love of Pinot Noir, as you know, we sell a lot of wine from the Pacific Northwest. I'd always stayed out of the burgundy business because it just seemed like really tricky waters, you know. Sure. Uh, but you have Topin out my arm. I, I did, yeah. And that was part of my first journey into selling burgundy, which I love. Uh, I mean, who doesn't love bur great burgundy? 
I developed a little portfolio of, of Burgundy producers. I toyed with it in 2007 with the 2004 vintage. And it went very, very well. And so the next vintage obviously was the, the great 2005. And I loaded my first container, Burgundy, that landed in New York Harbor the third week of September 2008. Still have some of those ones. <laughs> uh you know, no one was buying new wine and certainly from, you know, not, you know, my thing has always been to seek out new undiscovered producers. I, I, and so my Burgundy suppliers were not household names and were not the blue chip. They're very, very good wines, but they were very difficult to sell in, in that climate when you've got brand new uh, names and, and, uh, world, world economy in collapse. But, um, I would rather, I, mean, I still would rather deal with small wineries that I am bringing for the very first time. I, I don't find it terribly interesting as an importer to simply take a brand that someone else had and just see if you can steal it away and try and increase the sales. I, the true work of an importer and the people that came before me that I admire, the, you know, the Kermit Lynch's and the Chatterton's and whatnot from Rosenthal, who, you know, they went and discovered these wineries, and that's the model that I find I follow. I don't find it terribly interesting to simply look at it as a commercial exercise of taking a brand that does so many, you know, X number of boxes in the in the market and try to get it to two X. That's that's that really reduces it to crass commercialism. I think the interesting part is the discovery, and also to you know what I can then do for those suppliers to you know that they never had a market and now they have a market and but does like, that mean that the guy who does that crass commercialism does he sweat your guys sometimes when they get to a certain level oh yeah they sweat my guys a lot uh luckily most of my suppliers and i uh, my, my relationship with a lot of my suppliers is almost familial like we come become very good friends to the point almost like family so I've, yeah there's a lot of a lot of people knocking on the doors of my suppliers now that they've become famous. What's kind of interesting is that they're almost all famous now and almost none of them were when I picked them up. I mean, it's, um, I, I guess I'm pretty good at finding them, uh, just as they're about to break out, which was not accidental. I mean, in 98, when I started the company, I was like, well, you know, here I am late thirties, I have to build a portfolio. I should not in general be looking for winemakers who are 70 years old right. now. Uh, maybe they're, you know, at the top of their game, but what's in who, who is going to be a star in 10 or 15 years. And so that's been a piece of my puzzle that it's proven to work out fairly well. Because if a guy dies and then there's inheritance stuff and there's no, that might collapse the brand to speak about it in marketing terms, like it might diversify, be sold, totally change up. Yeah, I haven't uh, experienced that with any, you know, large significant suppliers out of uh, Italy. Well, large, large for me. I mean, <laughs> uh, what's that like? Ten thousand cases is probably yeah, probably the biggest producer I currently work with makes ten thousand cases a year. Um, but uh, I did have uh, one uh, Oregon supplier who passed, and and the brand essentially went away. His his widow did not want to continue on his work it was kind of painful for her so uh she leased her vineyard to another another winery um 
but as a general, he died uh, at a very young age uh, from you know, one of the most horrible diseases I'm aware of, uh, ALS, aka Lou Gehrig's disease. And when it comes upon you, it you know takes you down pretty quick. So he died. He was he was younger than me when he passed from ALS. But to bring it back to more happy subject matter, the Italian restaurant change in New York must have been kind of exciting to watch over, say, 20, 30 years, where, I mean, I know you don't live in New York, but you sell to New York, and must have been interesting seeing Italian be kind of become the language of fine dining for most people most of the time. Yeah, when, when I started, French cuisine reigned supreme in New York, and here I was trying to sell Italian wines, and so, like I said, I tried to sell Italian wine to Frenchmen. Uh, and to American restaurants. It was exciting to watch that. It, I actually prefer, as I said before, at the beginning, I was more familiar with domestic and French wine, but I had always preferred personally to eat Italian cuisine. I, uh, an olive oil-based fat you know, for the, for the cuisine it, uh, sits a lot better with me than, than butter and cream and whatnot. And I know French cuisine has moved on and there's not a lot of heavy, heavy uh, French cooking in New York anymore. But still, the, I prefer the, um, the less manipulated, the, the reliance on really la materia prima, the, the quality of the raw ingredient. I've always preferred to eat like that. And so I preferred Italian food. And Italian food then kind of swept uh, New York over those decades. So I was, I guess, lucky, slightly prescient perhaps, that that, that might happen. Uh, and and having decided to focus in Italian wines for my career. So you're a pretty smart guy and I think pretty thoughtful. How do you see the next 10 years shaping up for you? What's it going to look like, Artisan Wines, when we have this interview again in, in another decade? What what will have happened in the meantime? Oh, there are people in my company who think that you know I was wrong not to go national. And I have some pressure to uh, at least expand the reach I have, when I, when I set up my company, w- one of the things that I noticed during the approximately 15 years with Vinifera and Vias, you know, great wines from Italy were starting to get very expensive. And when you're on the inside and you see the, the pricing structure, at least on a national importer's structure, you realize that a big piece of that is, well, the importer's making 35% and the distributor in another state is making a similar amount. And now that we're, uh, you know, working with the Euro, uh, you know, the product becomes very, very expensive. I thought that I, I didn't enjoy traveling, so I didn't want to create a national company. And when I started, I was alone. So if I didn't want to travel, there was no one to travel. So my idea was to just import and treat my wines as if they came from California. There's a little bit more in terms of logistics getting them here, but to cut out that you know, that one margin and just deliver really great wine at a really great value, like Italian wine was, uh, when I first got into it, uh, which excited me so much about it. The, the problem with, even if you are based in New York, if you're selling to distributors, you have to take a double markup in New York so that you can achieve national pricing parity. If, if if you're selling, you know, taking a single markup here and then you're selling to Boston or whatever, and, and the wine is 35%, 40% more up there, they'll never buy from you. So uh, I wanted to deliver value, part of my QT and V. So now I realize there's quite a few producers who will never 
sell their wine to Massachusetts on their own or or you know we do sell in in Rhode Island now try and keep the pricing as close as we can to uh, how it is in the metro New York area but a lot of as a service to some of my suppliers I, I'd maybe uh, considering branching a broader geographically like maybe you know all of the east coast and the west coast I, I can't imagine myself or anyone who currently works for me, you know, traipsing around in Kansas City trying to dig up business. But maybe the two coasts, maybe we'll expand geographically. Because sometimes what I've seen is when suppliers do get poached from smaller companies, it's usually a national portfolio that says, hey, we could offer you national. That's one of the incentives for them to defect. Yeah, when I start with people, I usually am pretty emphatic about, which, and, and this will come back to bite me should I try to go national. I'm emphatic about it's their responsibility to sell, uh, to find and to sell to people in a few other key markets because I'm not national. If you're looking for one importer to just like take care of all of the U.S., it's not me. Now, with some of the producers, you know, I buy so much from them, they don't need to be right. national. If um, they're only making 8,000 cases, I mean, it's not <coughs> necessary to be I national. Mean, Cantina del Pino, there's 2,000 cases of Barbaresco uh, produced in a good year and we buy, I'm not going to say exactly, but a significant chunk of that. So he, he just, you know, no one's going to poach him because he doesn't need to sell much elsewhere. The, the pressure is from typically from national organizations. And, uh, so I try to encourage everyone to find someone on their own for the West coast and make tons of referrals in, in that effort. Now, if I want to go national, I'm going to have to try to get these brands back from people that I already referred them to. So I don't know how likely that is. If you could go back, what would you do different over the career that you've had? What would have been the change? Well, I'm pretty happy with how things are. I, uh, like most people who own small businesses, would like to see more growth. Uh, We've grown slowly, organically. You know, but a lot of a lot of times growth is achieved by taking in financial partners and backers, which I've always resisted, although there were offers, but it allows me to deal with it on my own terms. You know, the naming of my company was a real important and seminal thing for me uh, that the the ideas behind it were something that exist outside of me personally. they exist in the in the world in the universe of ideas. Artisan, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, that that should be the focus about what kind of wines they are and how they are produced. Most of my competitors uh, seem to have chosen to, you know, name their companies eponymously, where somehow it, it, it's implied that because it's them, uh, that that makes it somehow better or interesting. And the, uh, the idea of the cult of personality being such a popular driver of culture in, in our country right now to an ever increasing extent, maybe I should have called the company Robert Mackin selections. Um, but at the time it, it just, it seemed self-indulgent to me. I, I Mac wines, maybe. <laughs> you know, also there were, there were plenty of companies already that had Robert in the name, you know, Robert Haas, Robert Chatterton, you know, it's, uh, seems like a lot who have come before me were uh, Roberts as well. But I, I like being called Artisan, uh, you know, the, the company being called Artisan. I remember when I began in 1998, probably on a 
thrice daily basis, I had to spell and define that word for people and, and then also go on to explain how it applies to what I do and the kind of wines that I work with and, and why. And, and today, of course, you know, Quiznos bakes their subs on artisan baked bread. So the, you know, the, the naming of the company, it's, it's become such a, an idea that's been co-opted by big business trying to, you know, on something that is not truly artisanal off on the public because that idea has become a powerful idea. Yeah, I mean, the reason they do that is because people are searching for artisanal goods, right? Yeah. Yeah, they are now. But like I said, back in uh, 98 when I started, I, at least three times a day, I, I no, it's not artesian. That's a well. This is artisan and, and defined and, and explained how it applied to wine production. And so it's that has changed a lot. So I don't know. So how much is that a rejection of brands? Kind of something you also did. Yes, it is. It is a rejection of brands and something that, you know, in my past career, we didn't, those companies, we didn't really sell brands per se. They were all, I've always tried to associate myself with only very high quality stuff. And yet there were, there were times, particularly as a partner in Vias, where I would come across a, a, a winery that I really liked, uh, who made, truly compelling wines and they would say ah you know rob what are we going to do with that his total production is a thousand cases we're in 38 states what, where's the margin well yeah, yeah. What, what what is that why do that so much legwork for right. that, that and and so i wanted to be you know the the spokesperson for that little producer in the big city you know big bad new york city and and i was like well you're right. In 38 states, that means nothing. But if it's all staying right here in New York, a thousand cases is pretty sweet of that wine. So, you know, to some extent, you know, artisan wines is a spokesperson for the small grower, whether they're in Italy or the Willamette Valley or Washington State. And now, you know, uh, my newest thing is is Ontario. I'm really big into the wines from Ontario. Yeah, you have Norman Hardy. What's that like? Well, Norman is the one producer that I have from Prince Edward County. Oh, sorry. <laughs> And then I have three producers from the Niagara Escarpment area. And, uh, you know, before we mentioned global warming, if, unless you're a climate change denier, there is, there is some global warming happening. And I mean, pretty much everyone that comes on the show that grows wine tells me there is. Yeah. So, I mean, that to me, just that's the evidence that I need. Yeah. So I mean, people who farm the earth tell me that the temperatures are going up and it's from people from around the world. So, yeah. So clearly the the band around the globe that can produce fine wine is pushing farther in both directions from the equator. When you think that the Niagara Escarpment and the Ontario Lakeshore areas are essentially on the same latitude as Salem, Oregon, it's it's obvious that that's an interesting place on the globe, but you know latitude is is not all telling about climate that for sure. But, you know, the, the juxtaposition to great big bodies of water, which they have and everything. So it's a, a world-class area for Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Riesling. So Norman is a South African who's made wine all over the world, you know, working for other people, and, and went, went to Prince Edward County, which is the newest appellation up there for just what are incredible soils and incredible growing conditions for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir during the growing season. The, the hardship there and what has kept that area from being a world-class growing region 
in the past is just how terrible the the winter freezes are. The the climate there is extremely similar to Burgundy in the growing season. Extremely, probably it's the closest uh, match. It's a little warmer there than Burgundy. It's actually uh, more similar to Oregon maybe than Burgundy, but in very very close. But it's it's the, the deep winter freezes. But with global warming. They're not getting the deep winter freezes. So now the idea of planting there and not losing vines two, three years in every decade makes it possible to have a, a you know a fine wine, vinifera variety-based wine industry there. And the wines are distinctive and compelling, and um, I love them. So that's that's sort of my new new thing. I've been trying to do the new thing my whole career. I mean, when, when I was out pushing... Uh, you know, Beppe Rinaldi's uh, Brunate and uh, Bruno Giacosa. There were not a lot of people who knew what that was. That that was the new thing in 1980s. And so I, I always feel a need to be pushing boundaries and finding the, the next great thing. And, and for me, since I'm such a, an, a Pino and Nebbiolo head, uh, a, a, to find a world-class Pinot Noir growing region that's new, it doesn't come along that frequently. And so, uh, you know, very excited about that. Norman is on Prince Edward County, which is a, uh, a peninsula that juts out from the Northern shore of Lake Ontario into the lake. And so it's surrounded on three sides by water. So a huge influence of the, the water on the growing conditions there. Niagara is a little bit different uh, as a peninsula that sort of separates two lakes. Robert Mackin. He likes it if it's good, and he's been looking for the new for a number of decades now. Thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you, Levy. Robert Mackin of Artisan Wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.